We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the True Faith Podcast. Today you've got myself, Alex Hurst, in conversation with Dr. Neil Quilliam, who is the Associate Fellow, Middle East and North Africa Programme for Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And we're going to talk about Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia's relationship, difficult relationship with Qatar. Over the past, what, three months is it now that this incredible takeover saga has been going rumbling on and on and it has become a saga. Uh, I found myself, as I'm sure many of you have, reading about piracy, World Trade Organization, um, satellite subscription piracy, um, in a conflict between two Middle Eastern countries that until very recently meant very little to the vast majority of Newcastle United supporters. It's been a frustration of mine often to say people present themselves as experts or put forward facts and theories that they know very little about in a true faith. I thought we'd go and speak to someone who is definitely an expert in this area, if not the expert in this area. Um, so my thanks to Dr. Neil for his time. Uh, he was absolutely brilliant. And I would advise anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff to follow him on social media and keep an eye out for, for the excellent articles that he has out there. Uh, one of them which is linked to the description which brought him to our attention at True Faith. So without further ado... Here's the chat between me and Dr. Neil Quilliam. Neil, thanks so much for coming onto the show. Uh, we we'll hope we we'll hope uh, we we'll hope you're well in these troubled times. And how how much how much do you think that the the takeover of Newcastle United? Um, how how much has it caught the mood in Saudi Arabia? As far as you're aware, is is this being one of the main investments of its government and its investment fund? It's not the biggest. I mean, there have been some you know significant investments in in SoftBank, for example. And the public investment fund, which is the main sovereign wealth fund, has been making a number of significant acquisitions over the past couple of years. But, I mean, Newcastle Football Club very much sort of fits in with with its desire to create a new portfolio of uh, you know assets and investments. And it, it also sort of represents part of Saudi Arabia's bid to deepen ties between the, our two countries, which are already quite deep and multidimensional. It's also part of Saudi Arabia's sort of push for soft power, if you like. It's seen its neighbors, you know, the United Arab Emirates, um, buying into Manchester City, and it's seen Qatar um, buying PSG. So it forms part of a sort of, I guess, a wider um, competition amongst the Gulf Arab states down there in the Gulf 
to you know to, to buy clubs uh, effectively in Europe. I think one thing Newcastle fans are aware of is that, that there is a, a boycott between Saudi Arabia, Qatar and other states. But can you just give us a little bit of background about the disagreements are between the two states and, and, and what that has led to diplomatically? Sure. I mean, they amount to two different things. One is that Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia have different sort of competing visions for the region, if you like, for the Gulf region and for the Middle East. I'll talk about that in a second. And then the, the it is a competition between these, and, it, and it's sort of very personal. It's become highly personalized. So it's a combination of the two things. Now, sort of in, in essence, um, Saudi Arabia and its other main ally in, in the region is you know, the United Arab Emirates. And they have, they've had a vision for the region primarily since the Arab Spring, but it predates that in which they see um, the Middle East and North Africa region sort of building out a series of alliances that create a secular, if you like, a secular vision or a secular modern vision for the direction of the states in, in that region. Um, they have close ties, as does Qatar, with um, you know, the US, with the European powers, and, and with China. On the other hand, Qatar um, has has played. Qatar sort of grew very very quickly from 1996. It has the world's largest non-associated gas field, which has really catapulted it um, from being a sort of small, sleepy backwater, if you like, into an international player that is you know, tremendously wealthy. Um, has a relatively has a, actually a very small population in relative terms, and has given it a sort of a power that sort of somehow you know is outside outside of its position. Now, if we wind back to 2011 when the Arab uprisings were taking place, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, really saw the Arab uprisings as posing a challenge or posing a threat to their own security. There was fear that their own populations might rise up. Um, Qatar, on the other hand, played you know quite an instrumental role in supporting a lot of the Arab protesters, and in doing so, allied itself with this is a difficult term, but Islamist parties right across the region. That doesn't mean they're fundamentalists, or that doesn't mean they're Salafists. It just means that you know most of the political parties across the region um, have a sort of you know Islamist base. And Qatar very much sort of saw itself as being able to support those those um, parties or those protest groups and th- overthrowing the, the regimes that had sort of held them down for a very long time. So Saudi Arabia and the Emirates very much sort of positioned themselves as a status quo power, and they saw Qatar supporting groups that were largely inimical to their own direct interests. That, that sort of... Co- is part of the core issue here is their vision for the region. One sort of would, would argue that you know, we want strong leaders, we want strong militaries that pursue a sort of secular policy, whereas Qatar has aligned itself with, with groups and organizations um, that would naturally form political parties, but sort of have, a, have an Islamist base to it. That's not to say those are necessarily political or radical, just means that that's the nature of it. So one has a sort of view of 
an order where you know, Islamic parties are central to everything. The other has a view where you have a strong secular military. Those two competing visions have really brought Saudi Arabia and Qatar to this point. And then there's a long history, which I won't tell you about now, but of, of, of competition between the families in the Gulf and the, the, the leading or the ruling family in Saudi Arabia, the Al Saud, who the country is named after, of course, and the Al Thani, which is the ruling family in 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 Qatar, they've they've had a sort of uh, a close relationship over the centuries, and they've had a sort of fractious relationship. Like any two large families, you know, there have been moments and points of tension um, and alliance as well. And in two thousand and sort of thirteen, going forward, um, part of the complexity of that relationship has become highly personalized where slights have been felt and that sort of amplified this competition very interesting and can you just explain a little bit what the is it a blockade at the minute of of qatar uh, an economic blockade is 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 that something that's had a, a profound impact on on the area i mean it has i mean it's 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 i mean it had Clearly had you know a pr- profound impact on Qatar, um, because because in effect I mean it is I mean whether we use the blockade or use the term blockade or embargo, I mean, these are sort of highly politicized terms, but but in a sense you know Qatar was was cut off from its land routes direct its land routes you know to to its neighbors Saudi Arabia if you look at the archipelago, um, it's it's Qatar Airways its national carrier was no longer able to fly through the airspace of Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or Bahrain or Egypt. And it meant supplies, um, you know, supplies like milk, food, medicines could no longer pass through the, you know, pass through the, the normal channels. But Qatar has, um, by and large, and, 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 and to great effect, managed to sort of reorient its, its, its key trade relationships and has over the past few years sort of circumvented the challenges that that it initially faced. I mean, they were they were significant challenges, but they no longer, for example, you know, rely upon milk to come from Saudi Arabia. They have, in fact, you know, developed their own sort of milk industry, if you like. They have cultivated and developed relations much stronger with with South America. So a lot of their imports now come from South America. This is a, a new this is a new area. Um, but I guess the the greatest impact really is is on the populations. I mean, these are I mean, Saudi Arabia has you know is a state with thirty three million, but the but the remaining five countries of the of the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, have got relatively small populations, and you know there is a lot of marriage across the families in those six Gulf states, and that has presented you know major challenges. For, for, for Qataris and for Saudis and for Emiratis and Bahrainis from all six states to continue with the sort of extended family lives. So it's had a big impact on the daily lives of the populations. And that's where there is a, you know, a difference when, when you have a, a policy that's made by leaders at the top. The sort of the, the ripple effects on, on, the, on the actual populations themselves has been really quite painful. And moving on to sport a little bit, you know, Qatar 
has the World Cup in, in 2022. It has BN Sports, which which has a, a global presence almost. It, is BN Sports tradition not being showed in Saudi Arabia? Is that a byproduct of this of the Qatar boycott? No, there there is some power to it. I mean, it's it's one of many sort of policies or, or consequences of, of this intense competition between between the, the states. I mean, just to put this in context, I mean, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates would argue, and they could, you know, they could try to demonstrate their case that Qatar's foreign policy or its, you know, its external policy has has worked against the interests of their own countries. They would argue that you know Al Jazeera news network and news channel has sort of fermented unrest, has pilloried its leaders. Um, they would also argue that Qatar has supported groups within their own countries that are inimical to their own interests and would challenge or overthrow the leadership. So, so the the sense of frustration and, and anger, if you like, is really quite profound and quite significant. So it manifests itself in different ways. Bain um, uh, Sports Channel is one of those areas. Aviation is another, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Qatar Airways can no longer, you know, fly through the the various sort of uh, you know, jurisdictions, and those issues have been taken, uh, you know, to to the to the WTO, as we know, with Bain. They've been taken to the UN's International Civil Aviation Organization. Um, and more recently has been taken to the International Court of Justice. So so, so sports is one of, you know, a, a suite of areas where there is, you know, where there, where there is real friction. So, so it's, it's, an, it's an important part of this um, competition. And we've heard a lot as Newcastle United supporters about the, the WTO and their, their report last week into piracy. It, it, do you think this is yet yeah, considered a real victory? Are, are the Qataris saying that as a as a major victory as yet, or, or will time tell? I think I, I think time will tell. This this sort of debate, this this area is so is so polarized, is so toxic, if you like. Um, even for sort of analysts such as myself, I mean, since since this you know since this rift really took place, a lot of analysts will find themselves on on one side of the divide. So it's 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 become really polarized. And I think it, it's 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 hard to tell how how this will really play out, um, but I but but I guess in, in the immediate time it's to sort of see you know where the English Premier League makes its decision, and that 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 will be the clear point as as to whether this is a victory for one side or the other. For example, if the if someone like the English Premier League were to reject the two directors put forward by the the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, if, if Qatar was able to demonstrate that it could influence something uh, as far away and as important as this, what kind of impact do you think it would have on the relationship between between the two countries, if any? I mean the I mean the two two countries have no diplomatic relations uh to speak of whatsoever. No, but it's but it's an important point that you raise. Um I mean this you know this this rift between the two countries is deep. And it, and it has become deeper over time, and I think this, you know, if, if that if that decision were made, then it then it would, you know, make it much harder in in in, in the future to resolve this, you know, this crisis. And it is a crisis, so it's so it, it it would it would it would deepen that much much further. In terms of how Saudi Arabia is is run, the words de facto ruler are often used about um, Mohammed bin Salman. 
um, in terms of his the power that he wields in Saudi Arabia. Is that the case? I, I mean, I think it's I think it's more complicated than that. Um, I mean, the the ruling Al Saud family has been you know has been there since 1932. Um, I mean, it predates that, but 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 the Saudi Arabia as we know it. It has been run by has been run by by a family, and the family is large and extensive. Um, Mohammed bin Salman, since becoming um, crown prince, or at least since his father became king, has to a large extent sort of consolidated power and authority in his hands in the, in the, in the hands of a, a smaller coterie, if you like, of, of of the family than before. So so there has been this sort of grip on 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 power if you like the one thing you can say and 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 again these these issues are sort of highly highly political and highly politicized is that you know since since sort of coming to prominence and he and he was he was never that well known prior to the last sort of five years you know he's he's arrived in in Saudi Arabia with agenda to you know push through significant reform and significant change and that's sort of reflected in you know vision 2030 which he's which he's you know pretty much put in place and whilst we might sort of depict him as a as a de facto leader as or as this monarch with massive power in his hands one can't discount the support that he has from the younger population i mean figures about saudi populations are, are really well known but you know, seventy percent of the population's under thirty, and the country has been governed largely by seventy and eighty-year-olds for a very long time. Um, MBS, as we call him, Mohammed bin Salman, has sort of come in, brought in a new coterie of advisors to work with him, and has really appealed to the sort of Saudi youth have, who have, by and large, bought into this project about big change and about big transformation. So it's not it's not as sort of black and white as to sort of depict him as this, you know, despotic leader that just simply wants to bang his fist on the table and rule. There is there is significant support and he is pushing through a series of changes. However, the nature in which some of those changes are taking place and you know you've you've mentioned amnesty sort of coming on. I mean they would they would have highlighted some of the areas of, of concern not only to the population, but certainly concerned to the international community as well. Neil, it was put to me on the Guardian Football Weekly podcast I did by James Montagu, and this has been said by people who have an opposing view to yourself and are anti-takeover, um, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is not Sheikh Mansour of Manchester City or the people that he employs to run the football club and that Newcastle United fans have an unrealistic expectation of how things are going to play out uh, do you know where that comes from, or do you think that's fair? So the leader, the the deputy president of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, um, is is a different leader. Yes, um, I mean he's in his late fifties. He has sort of you know slowly been acquiring power, and he's you know he's been he's been a real center of change in the Emirates over the past twenty years at least. And has a has a clear sense of where he sees the Emirates fitting into the region, and also where he sees the Emirates sort of fitting into the international arena, if you like. And the UAE has become a very important player, and it's similarly to Qatar, it's sort of outsize of its of its of its actual size. It, it's it's um it's it's allied itself, and it's quite instrumental in holding a very strong relationship with with 
with the US and with the UK and other European powers. Mohammed bin uh, Salman hasn't had sort of you know, the schooling abroad that, that a lot of the leaders from the Gulf have had. Um, he hasn't necessarily had the training and being in his early 30s, he doesn't really have the experience that these other leaders have. But what he does have, which previous and earlier Saudi leaders didn't seem to have, you know, is that energy and drive and will to implement and enforce uh, change and reforms. For a long time, sort of people such as myself, as, as, as analysts, as think tankers, and as policymakers, have been trying to encourage the Saudi leadership you know, to reform the country, to improve the human rights record, to allow women to drive, to open up the economy. Um, and there was always there was always sort of piecemeal change by by the previous king, King Abdullah, was seen as a reformer, but things would move so slowly. Now, with his sort of exuberance and youth, if you like, he's come in and brought in you know profound changes. I mean, women can drive now, which which is huge. The whole guardianship issue is shifting and changing. So there's this big dynamic going on, but it seems the cost of that is maybe you know the cost that youth brings us and that's not something easy to bear if you're if you're at the cutting edge of that and that's you know he is prone to make those mistakes and i suspect that's more to do with maybe not being willing to take the counsel of of, of elders around him because he's impatient to push this change and wants to do it on his terms the public of saudi arabia who as i understand are, are keen football fans and the national team has has appeared at World Cups in, in recent years. Do you think this is going to be a, a a positive PR move within the country? Should 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 they take over at Newcastle United? No, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think I mean I, I think there's there's no doubt. I mean, suddenly you would have you know the pretty much the whole population of Saudi Arabia supporting Newcastle. They would see that as you know as 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 a very very um, positive and and strong move. Um, and to be part and parcel, you know, of the English Premier League would would, would be a massive, um, a massive boost, shall we say? And as I said, and it it would sit well, especially with with Saudi youth, which is the predominant demographic in the country. And there is there is a sort of there is um, a very strong and outwardly positive sentiment towards the UK. You know, the relationship is historical. It is multidimensional. So this, as a sort of an expression of soft power, almost between the two countries, this this would sort of tie, I guess, tie, tie the, the countries closer. Um, and, I, and, I, and I should say that, I mean, you know, so I'm, an, I'm a long-term analyst of, of, of this country. And... Um, I mean, when you know, when we're when we're thinking about some of these issues, when we're thinking about human rights, when 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 we're thinking about this dispute in itself, I sort of often remind colleagues that we should also be thinking about you know this profound change the country is going through, and the youth that are driving it, and they're a part and parcel of that. And I, I think there's 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 tremendous sort of optimism in the country at the moment. And I think by sort of buying into the English Premier League, that will, that will sort of drive that along a bit. There's a uh, story in the Times today that Saudi Arabia has significantly changed its approach to piracy in its own country. Um, it's, has that surprised you at all, the World, the World Trade Organization having this kind of impact? Not really. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the, the Saudi leadership is, you know, is by and large quite young. 
Um, so it has made an, a number of, of errors. And, you know, um, we, we, we can see the painful conflict or the painful war in Yemen. We can see the sort of the detention or the holding of, um, you know, former Lebanese prime minister, Saad Hariri. I mean, there, you know, there, there, there's a whole kind of catalog of issues where, where the country seems to have taken a number of missteps. But it is very keen or very intent on sort of addressing some of these issues. So, so the, the concentration or the consolidation of power in, in the hands, you know, around of MBS and those around him means that they they can sort of, you know, go for a course correction quite quickly when they understand the impact or the consequences of certain decisions. So this this doesn't, I mean, I think buying Newcastle, buying into Newcastle is seen as, you know, it's, it's, it's an important part of its own kind of soft power expression. And if 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 piracy is going to derail that, then I think it, you know, the leadership will really want to shift that. So no, I, it doesn't surprise me. Where where do you see things going from here in terms of that relationship to to Qatar? Is this the kind of thing that Qatar would take lying down, and, and is this set to be a yet another battleground between the two countries' football, or do you think it's uh, once it's done, Qatar have got other battles to fight? I mean, I think there are other battles to fight. I mean, you know, the the battle will take place on the you know on on the football pitch as as it were, um, but there are you know there are other there are other battles to fight in, in, in this context. I mean, I have said, you know, the, the sort of rift is, is deep, has become very, very personalized, and, and it is about these competing strategic visions. However, there will at some point need to be some resolution of this. Uh, the U.S. has sort of made various, various attempts, at, you know, sort of bring, bringing the different sides together and there are some key sort of demands that, that, that Saudi and the Emirates have, I mean, that 13, in fact, of which six are sort of critical, um, that, that need to be sort of satisfied. But I would say over, you know, over the next maybe, I mean, this has been going for three years now. Um, if, if you had somebody in the White House who was really keen and intent on actually helping some, bring some resolution, irrespective of the depth of this rift, there could be some kind of resolution Although, you know, memories would be long and hard and uh, it would sort of continue to sour relations over time. Fascinating. Neil, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to chat to you and it's great to hear from an expert on the subject. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you.